Hello and welcome to Opening the Gates to More Listings for Estate Agents with me, Simon Gates. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Mr. Jonathan Hamford. John, thank you very much for joining me. Simon, thank you for having me. Good stuff. Look, you're a tough cookie to uh, to pin down after how busy you were um, when I was uh, first recording uh, these podcasts. But um, you kindly um, said that you would come on when we uh, saw each other at Park Lane recently. And I did not expect when I said happy birthday to you for you to go, we need to get on that podcast. And uh, I was like, oh, that's that seems like a birthday present to me rather than for you. So thank you for joining today. And a valuable lesson there, I think, in pouncing on an opportunity because you said no time better than the present. So whilst I've got you, let's uh, let's pin in a date. Yeah, um, yeah, correct. I guess actually on that point, it is just always ask the question, isn't it? You don't ask, you don't get. And uh, yeah, I was, I was pleasantly surprised. But there you go, you, t- you take the opportunity. Yeah, um, no, I, I genuinely wasn't ghosting you initially. Um, it was just <laughs> a case of trying to coordinate two very busy diaries. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Apologies for missing out on the first round and glad to be here for the second. No, no, good stuff. Right. So um, look, look, there's many reasons why I, I wanted to uh, to get you on. And actually, uh, one of the reasons, if we cast our minds back to February 2020 uh, and Stephen Brown uh, put on the Troy Malcolm Masterclass uh, in Birmingham and uh, some crazy guy um, decided to stand up in front of an audience full of estate agents and get on the microphone. Uh, when Troy Malcolm said, does anyone want to do a hypothetical pitch? Um, and you were that guy. Um, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I do remember that distinctly. Ironically, my wife was there with me. It's very rare that she gets to go to an industry event. Um, we do work together, but she's more the engine behind the scenes. Um, so I think that was probably one of the first and only times she's ever seen me speak in front of an audience of people. So I had the added pressure of a room full of agents, Troy, <laughs> who I hold in very high regard, as I do Stephen Brown as well. Um, but then a, a room full of judgmental estate agents that were probably um, uh, staring, staring me down. Um, but yeah, it, look, I think the thing that was embarrassing there, I think Troy offered the opportunity out to the room and nobody said anything. Yeah. And there was this deafening silence. And I, I couldn't help myself but to just step in and intervene. Uh, I went there as a, uh, as, as a willing observer rather than as a participant, but I felt it necessary to, to throw my hat in the ring and get involved. But I, I love Troy, you know, and I, I think back to that session, sorry to digress, there are a couple of nuggets that I've taken away from that that will stay with me forever. Um, and one of them was he, he was talking about your new window displays, your social media. Yeah. He said your, 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 your physical window display is redundant. He said it, you know, it just doesn't carry the same gravitas that it used to. Your, your window display now is your social media and you can have multiple window displays. I remember sat there thinking, you are bang on. You are absolutely right. And, and how fascinating that he said that in February 2020. None of us knew what was going to happen uh, a month after that. Um, so it's incredible about that that sort of social media kind of thing. Um, and then the other thing that I'm going to say I took away from that day, which I used to do, um, but not on the scale of which Troy broke it down and was basically looking at, let's say, you know, you've got a property on at a million, someone's at nine, the buyer's at 975, the seller's not sticking, and you've got that classic, you know, uh, meet in the middle kind of vibe that most agents will, will kind of do and 
Chris Voss in Never Split a Difference says, please don't ever split a difference. But what I found fascinating is his his view on, well, what does that mean daily on your mortgage? So like the difference between you paying 975 and a million at this rate, did a, it's two pound a day, it's a cup of coffee or, or whatever it is. And I used to kind of do that. But I look back now, I'm like, my God, if I'd done that to, to, to a bigger extent, like Troy was saying, the amount of deals that I would have done, but also I think got more money in the back pocket of my sellers, which was the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I remember this. I think at one point we did it to it. Was, it was a, it was a pint of lager and a, and a packet yeah. of nuts at the, at the local. So I think that's how long ago we were first um, first using that as leverage. But it's right. And sometimes, you know, people falter and fall at the principle because, you know, they don't want to pay any more. But then you actually look at it as a percentage of the overall purchase price. So you are prepared to buy it at this, but that's just the point where it's too much. And again, the same principle when you're having the discussion with the seller, you're prepared to let it go at this. And, you know, one of the things that I frequently say to sellers is, look, you know, it's not just the price. You have to look at the overall package. You, know, you have to look at the, the the actual people that are buying, their ability, their position, their finances. Yeah. You know, the price is one small part of an overall decision-making process. And if all of those other things are absolutely right and you're half a percent away from where you need to be on price, in the grand scheme of things, you're pretty much on the sweet spot. And, you know, you, you, need, you need to think about taking this offer. But... Um, it's hard. It becomes principle-based negotiations where yeah. people are, you know, they're just adamant they're going to get a certain price and they're, they're steadfast on it, which sometimes can be uh, counterintuitive and it can be a self-sabotage thing because how many times have we seen a seller have that approach and then end up selling for less, um, yeah. which is, you know, we know that because of our wisdom of years of experience of doing the job, but some of these people, they might do it once every seven or ten years. So, as a result, they don't they don't realise those mistakes, and it's down to us to try and articulate that and present case studies and show them examples of of other people that have made similar decisions, and it ultimately possibly been a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. On on something uh, you just said there, that made me think uh, think of something I was looking at yesterday, or the day before, and I posted something online, and I looked at uh, where I live. And I looked at the properties which were currently for sale under a uh, sold subjects contract. So basically active in the market now. And 33% of those listings, so one in three, had not sold their home in 20 plus years. So okay. when you just said about, you know, people moving every, you know, half a dozen, dozen years, whatever, and they think they're right. Um, and that sort of little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And yeah, if one in three are, are you know, moving for the first time in a quarter of a century, it's like, you know, a quarter of a century when it used to be, oh, yeah, you know, negotiate 10% off your asking price because that's what you do. It's like, no, no, that that knowledge is outdated. Um, and on the point of knowledge being outdated, it's my turn to digress now, uh, John. And I was having this chat with uh, Sam Hunter the other day where I was reading something and it was about like the um, 5,000, 10,000 hour rule. Um, and basically to do a four year degree takes 6,400 hours of study. So being in the um whatever you call them lectures doing the homework studying whatever it is 6400 um hours now every um year 
some of that knowledge becomes outdated because things change. So just to stand still, you need to do 250 hours of studying a year on your subject just to stay still. So randomly, that's going to lead nicely into something I wanted to ask you. You've been an estate agent for a bloody long time, but I know that you're a very big learner and, you know, going on uh, the Troy Malcolm Masterclass, various other things. What keeps you motivated to keep on learning and making sure you're staying at the top of your game? Good question. Um, so there's a, there's a range of answers to that question. Um, I think knowledge is power. I think the more knowledgeable you are, the more confident you are. Yeah. And confidence is a big factor in this job. Yeah. Being able to command a living room, being able to grab sellers by the scruff of the neck and you know not coerce them but you know for their own benefit force them in a direction that's going to benefit their it's going to be a benefit for the outcome for them and i think you, you've got to have confidence in what you're doing i still learn stuff about this job every day <laughs> there are still instances of things that i come across that you've never come across before there was one that i was dealing with a week or so ago called a tyneside lease Never come across it before in my life. Oh, what? Sorry, John. What was it? Uh... Pine side lease. Okay. So apparently, this base it started up in the northeast. It was where houses were split into two, um, and they're intrinsically linked to each other in terms of the title. But there was a new build not a million miles from us that was involved in a chain. I'd never come across that term before. You know, so it is such a massive range of information within our sector, and it's almost impossible to know it all now. I, I run a boot camp training course for finding country for new starters, for induction delegates. In fact, I've got the booklet here because um, I'm in the process of just printing off. That's the folder of all of the content that we uh, that we talk through. It's a three-day training session. And in here, we've got describing architecture. We've got the process breaking down from the legal responsibilities, legislative stuff, qualification, you know, we really drill down into viewings, offers, sales, conveyancing, everything that you could imagine. And we are literally just scratching the surface yeah. because there's only so much that you can cover in three days. Um, I'm a qualified estate agent. I think everybody within our industry should be. Mm. I think we would be able to do a better job and we'd be able to command a better fee if we were licensed and we were all qualified. So if I had a magic wand, it would be one of the changes that I would make tomorrow. So... I don't see this as a job. I see it as a profession and it's yeah. cliche to say it's a calling, but you know, I genuinely believe in helping people at a really pivotal point in their lives. And you can be a force as you're a force for good where you can, you know, have a, a hugely beneficial impact. But on that same token, you get it wrong and you can have a really negative impact upon people's lives, especially when they're dealing with death divorce, debt, dependence, lots of stressful, difficult things. Um, and then you throw into the mix a bad estate agent with some bad advice that can turn their life upside down. So for me, learning is not a destination. It's a journey. I think you're always going to be doing it um, because it's an ever-evolving industry. And I think if you continue to do, as you've quite rightly touched upon, if you continue to do what you've always done, you won't, 
you won't continue to get what you've always got. I think you'll just cease to exist. Yeah. You know, you've just used that analogy. You said um, a third of the properties in that area hadn't sold in 20 plus years. Just over 20 years ago, right move didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. Right into perspective, yeah. there was no such thing as property portals. We didn't have digital cameras. I was still rocking about in a Corsa with a roll of 10p coins uh, in case somebody turned up late to a viewing appointment and I had to go to a phone Brilliant. box to ring somebody. So, you know, a lot has changed in 20 years yeah. and, it, you know, you, you've just got to stay sharp and you've just got to be at the, the, the cutting edge of innovation and, and new techniques. So uh, for me, it's, um, it's, it's it's not a destination, it's a journey. Um, I, I love everything you said, said there and uh, a, a couple of things on what you'd said about the 10 P's. Uh, when I was in the early days of my agency career and I'm thinking summer of 09, I still had a pay as you go mobile. And if a viewer was like not turned up or I was running late or something, I'd ring the office. I'd be like, ring me back, bye. And I'd put the phone down so that they could ring me back rather than waste my credit on my pay-as-you-go phone. Um, and then the other thing you said about uh, Rightmove and, and sort of digital era, yeah, I, I didn't, that didn't even cross my mind when I looked at this stat this week. Um, and then with what you said, I've said this in, in probably podcast episodes before, my grandmother's moved for the first time in 40 years recently. And she said to me, Simon, they had this device to measure the house. They put it on the wall. It had a red laser and it had all the measurements. He didn't have a tape measure, Simon. And I was just like, "That that's normal, Nana. But obviously she's not moved in 40 years, but she had that property on the market about 20 years ago. Um, but for one reason or another, it didn't happen. So again, that sort of ev evolution. Um, so just sort of moving um, slightly on uh, from what we've just been discussing, I want to actually go back a few steps because I didn't know this. And you mentioned at the start that um, your uh, wife is kind of the the oil behind the scenes that keeps the 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 machine going. Um, there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast who probably are in business with family, be it their partner um, or son, daughter, parent, etc. So. What, what's that like it, there must be ups and downs with that and, and and balancing uh you know the personal life and and the work life so how, how do you manage that um we i genuinely feel i couldn't do what i do if i didn't have that partnership with with laura um we've we've got an added nuanced complication as well we've got a boy with special needs he's got autism so we have to home educate which means that we're not only spinning the plates and, and juggling the business needs, we've also got home education, which Laura does the majority of. And again, I'll chip in from time to time and help as much as I can. But, um, you know, there's this old adage, Aces in their places where people do what they do best. And I couldn't spend my time and energy doing the things that I do if I didn't have her administrative and organizational skills with things that happen in the background so you know we, we we make for a really good partnership in that sense and don't get me wrong laura has done some coalface estate agency uh, stuff but um the vast majority of that has been left to me so that she can steer the ship in my uh, in my absence so it makes for a really good partnership that's really interesting but again you saying you know you in the living room doing what you do best is not going to happen with without that behind the scenes and again that's reminded me of my estate agency days and it's slightly different but I think there's kind of synergy there where I could tell when I looked at my like valuation form that sounds so corporate but valuation form in the car 
ready to go into that appointment. And I'd look at it. I knew who'd booked that appraisal by by looking at the form, the details. And I knew I had a better uh, chance of succeeding on that appraisal and getting a higher fee dependent on who booked that. So, I, yeah, I'm completely with on that. The team behind the scenes um, are, are so important and you can potentially win or lose a business before you're even in the living room, right? Uh, yeah, agreed. You know, it's an awful term, but again, one that fans of rugby will be familiar with. You know, you can have a suicide pass where somebody <laughs> on the pitch is throwing you something and a split second later, you're going to get absolutely crunched by three or four opponents. Um, and that's a similar thing in the, you know, when you're working in amongst the team. If somebody's done a poor job of booking an appraisal and you're on the back foot from the outset, that is not going to be a great start to an appointment where the information is wrong and like you're all enthused at the front door and, you know, while we're, here, while we're getting divorced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Read the room. You need that cohesion between um, who you're working with. And, you know, essentially there's a lot of self-employed agents out there at the minute that are rocking around in little insular bubbles and they're going to find it really hard to scale up because actually if you want to grow your business, you've got to have a bigger team. You've got to have people that are contributing in different areas and, um, you know, I've worked in big, big teams that have done big numbers, 40% plus market shares. And then I've also seen small little single single people operations. And, you know, not, I'm not saying that one is better than the other, but yeah. if the single, the single um, person operation wants to grow, they've got to learn to delegate. They've got to learn to expand the team. They've got to work out what things that they do well, they've got to have good systems, good processes, you know, and this is where PropTech ste- steps in and I think he's, a- he's able to do some of the heavy lifting, um, you, you know, and again, that's sort of about changing the dynamic. And it's it's, it's always interesting. The other thing that I've found you know, it, it, within the estate agency profession over the 20 plus years that I've done the job is there is almost a career path for a good estate agent to go into some form of middle or senior management and the reality is they're two very different skill sets. Yeah. <laughs> there are very few people that can do both because one is, you know, almost by definition, this very driven, focused, resource orientated, but your own personal performance set up, whereas middle and senior management is achieving results through people. And it requires nurturing and coaching and training and development. You know, there are two very different skill sets. And I think if you look at premiership football as an example, you've got Gerard and Lampard <laughs> who have stepped into, you know, world-class footballers in their own right. They ain't doing that well in management, you know. And, and again, it, 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 almost their name has given them a career path into management, but actually the results don't speak for themselves. I know Gerard had a good run in Scotland, but it's almost a two-horse race. So you could have yeah. a 50-50 chance of succeeding there regardless. Yeah, no, I was sorry to go because I was just going to say on on that point there, and of course I'm going to be uh, a a bit um, biased uh, in both Liverpool, uh, a bit up and down the season. If you look at Jurgen Klopp by his own admission, he didn't reach the pinnacle of football in his uh, playing career. Yeah, he's one of the best coaches, managers out there, and I think it's the same for for lots over the years. You know, was Sir Alex Ferguson. Uh, winning Ballon d'Ors and you know Champions Leagues and World Cups. No, he wasn't. But he was a and and actually, when when you hear back about him, I hated him growing up. Don't get me wrong, I despised him in Manchester United. But I look back now and I I I'm in awe of him and what he achieved. But he didn't do the coaching, like you were kind of saying the differences and knowing skill sets. He was a bloody good man manager. 
he knew how to get the best out of people and he knew that actually I've got this team around me who's going to do the coaching sessions but he knew how to manage people and, and, and get the most out of them so it's really interesting hearing uh how you're sort of saying about that um, it's definitely a lot to take away from that Look, look I'm, I'm a big football fan. I am a United fan. So, uh, it, uh, but... I didn't know that, John. I wouldn't have got you on the podcast. She's going to make the rest of this podcast really awkward <laughs> as we just sit there in silence, staring each other down. <laughs> so, the, the one thing that I'll give Ferguson absolute credit for, he wasn't afraid to make the difficult decisions. You know, you look back over his, his career and there were a lot of people that he let go within that United squad that you would argue weren't necessarily at the end of their career, but in his eyes, it was time to move them on, and it was it was brave decisions. Um, but um, yeah, he, he just he wasn't an individual that was afraid to make difficult and tough decisions. I, I think, and and anyone listening who's not a football fan, apologies, but I think there's a lot that can be taken away from it. And just on on Sir Alex Ferguson, if you, and what you've just said. Uh, I immediately thought Yap Stam, David Beckham, Roy Keane, Cristiano Ronaldo, all Nist- spot on decisions. Yeah, Nistelrooy, Paulin. Nistelrooy, yeah, yeah, Paulin, absolutely. And I think that whilst Plaudits will probably come for, um, you know, the 98-99 uh, treble winning season, which of course is unbelievable, um, he probably had in that period three or four, probably four different cycles. So he's won the Premier League in different cycles. So he's built teams again. And it's perhaps something Jürgen Klopp at Liverpool's got to go through. I'm not comparing him with uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, but he's got to go through that cycle now. And I think, again, with, with Ferguson, he won the Premier League three times in a row, twice. Good luck if anyone is ever going to do that again. Man City are trying to win it three times in a row for the first time ever with Guardiola this season. Again, Ferguson did it twice. Like it's it's when you look at it, it's like ridiculous how how amazing he was. And and I'm sure you could agree, for example, the last title winning season he had in what 12, 13 squad wasn't say, very good. Average side. It yeah. was an average side. You know, you look, there wasn't any complete superstars in that squad, but actually, you know, and this is back you I think if you have got a team, it's not about having great individuals. It's about having a team that all pull in the same direction and work together. My favourite book, hands down, is Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of them, it actually isn't one of the seven habits, but he talks about you've got got dependence. So a baby, for instance, is... He's completely um, dependent upon another person looking after it. You've got independence, which is the next evolution, where you can then look after yourself. And then you've got interdependence, excuse me, where you've got a um, a group or a collective of people that can work together to achieve a bigger and a better resource. You know, you use that analogy of the geese flying in formation in a V, you know, that gives them an uplift on their wings. They rotate and take turns where the front geese will go to the back and another one will step in. They honk to encourage each other. But that interdependence of being able to work together to achieve a bigger and a better result um, and that I think is critically important. It's something I've always tried to bestow upon my teams. You know, you won't succeed individually, but you will collectively. Um, you know, it, it's more important for you all to work together to have that symbiosis, that that relationship where you all bounce off each other. You know, and when one of you is down, the others can honk around them and bring them back up again, and vice yeah. versa. There'll be a point in the future where you'll you'll draw upon that yourself. And I think Ferguson. 
he was able to draw upon that interdependence to get a team working well together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you said there made me think of Paul McGinley on the High Performance Podcast talking about when he was Europe European Ryder Cup captain and Sir Alex Ferguson gave a speech to the team before to get them motivated. Um, and again, I think looking outside of, of their industry, whilst it's obviously still sport, it was golf, looking at football and what can you take from uh, from football on that. Um, so that's that's um, interesting to hear that. And it, it, the golf thing as well, so you like your golf as well, John, is that when you said about when one is is perhaps performing, uh, you know, not as well, the other one steps off. It's a bit like having a match, uh, you know, a, a four ball match play. You go in the water, I go in the water. Right, John, I need you to get this on the green now, otherwise we're, we're screwed. So it's making sure that when I do bad, you do good and, and vice versa. So, so leaning on each other. Um, so I've got, I've, got a, I've got a mate of mine that uh, he calls that ham and egg in. <laughs> so, you know, you can win a game of golf by actually but having half a terrible round. But if yeah. you're playing partner, you're halfway you're having a terrible hole, your playing partner steps up, you ham and egg together in between you, you do it. And I just think it's such a great concept. Yeah. It's where that, that interdependence thing steps in uh, and yeah. works really well. Definitely. Um, right. Okay. We're going to move on towards uh, the end of the podcast now. Um, and I want, I want to go quite specific on this. So I think you've, you've shown uh, uh, to the listeners why in your LinkedIn profile, it says speaker, coach, trainer, agent in the upper quartile, and you were 2019 best finding country operator in the world. Um, so with that in mind and sort of upper quartile, I sort of want to concentrate the last bit of this podcast now on that. So if you were, for example, to come to the Newport Pagnell area, um, so, so my my manor, my neck of the woods, if you were going as a self-employed agent, perhaps under the Finding Country brand or, or or something else, and you're trying to get into high end, no one knows you here. How? What are you doing to start with to to open doors? Um, so for clarity, have I got experience as an estate agent or am I literally... I, I'm going to say you you have got experience because I think there's a lot of experienced agents who listen to this who have perhaps gone down the self-employed route or they're looking at branching into new areas or they're selling properties at, let's say, a few hundred thousand, but they want to go to that million pound market. So let's say you have got experience. It, okay, so it's paradoxical to assume that you are going to be able to work both markets. So I was a mass market agent and then I commercially made the decision to focus on the upper quartile. I think if you are a owner of a prime property and the person that you've got on your sofa is also dealing with a two-bedroom maisonette, yeah. So their next appointment or their next open house, that owner sat there is going to look and think you're not the agent for my property. It's not a snobby thing. It's uh, I want somebody that is tailored and specialising in this part of the market because they're more used to dealing with something like this. It's more nuanced. So you've got to make a commercial decision on what part of the market. You can't say, oh, well, I'd like to get some bigger houses. No, it is a business choice to focus and dedicate your career to that part of the market. So I think if you try and do both, you're going to fail miserably. I know very few instances where people are able to to dance on both sides of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And on that point you've made then, let's say, for example, someone's going from that more high volume mass market where it's busy, there's lots of valuations, lots of viewings, deals being tied up and, you, you know, like that 
that adrenaline, that buzz of that. You then go, right, I'm going to target the upper quartile where obviously much more uh, expensive properties, potentially higher fees, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to be a, a lot quieter if, if you get where I'm coming from with that, where agents might then go, oh my God, this this is a bit difficult. Like I've, I've not had a phone call this week or I haven't done an evaluation for a week or two. You must have experienced that over the years. And, and how do you how do you combat that? Yeah. So and again, I think um, it's a different type of busy. So you I mean, mass market when you're in the muck and bullets of it, you've got viewings coming out your ears. You've got loads of inquiries. It, you, you know, it, it's a very different dynamic to operating in the upper quartile. Now, the mistake that a lot of people make is they think that they just have to do less. Um, and they're still going to have the the same conversion and all of those things, and they will still be able to get the same income by just doing the same amount of activity uh, or, or doing a fraction of the activity but getting paid higher fees and selling bigger houses. It doesn't work that way. You've got to really grind to get yourself known. Your reputation's got to be bomb-proof. You have to do a better job. So if I was to do an appraisal now um, – and I'm not exaggerating. I'll put two and a half, three, three and a half hours of prep in prior to the appointment just before I even go and visit. Um, so if I'm going to a property, I'll have printed off all of the title plans. I'd have all the listed building statuses. I'd have all of the planning pre- uh, history. I'd have gone through all of the documents. I would have read all of the disputes. I would have read and understood so I can answer any questions and I can talk about it. The level of detail that I will have gone into prior to that appointment will blow socks. I'll have all of the comparables done. I'll have worked out pound per square foot. So yeah. I'll come back to what I said at the start of the podcast, knowledge is power. So I don't want to go in there blind and not know anything about the house. I almost know all of the things that I want to discuss and talk about anyway. And if I'm up against three or four other agents and I'm only the only one that's put that level of effort and prep in, yeah. I'm not only more likely to win that instruction, I'm more likely to be able to get it at the right price, the right fee. Uh, I'm going to have to deal with less objections when it comes to them choosing which agent to work with. Um, So, you know, I think if all that you want to do is sell um, big posh houses and you're going to do what you've done in the mass market, you're going to fail miserably um, because, you know, those people don't suffer falls gladly. They want that um, higher level of attention to detail and their properties command it. They're they're more nuanced. They're more... Um, there's there's more to know, and you know, and I've, I've used this term so many times, and I use it within my boot camp training. You are an ambassador of that property, and you need to develop a museum curator level of knowledge when dealing with it. And if you've if you can convey that on a market appraisal, and you can talk about all of the things that this house has to offer whilst on the appointment. And you're almost demonstrating to your vendor how you're going to pitch it to a potential buyer on a viewing appointment. They're already thinking, this is a safe pair of hands. You know, one of the things that I do, and I'm amazed that other people don't do this, on an appraisal, I'll record the conversation. Interesting. And I'll get permission. I won't just go in and record because obviously (laughs) you can't do that. But when we're doing the property tour, I will say to the vendor, look, in the event that you instruct me, I don't want to miss anything in terms of writing 
in the brochure or the description have you got any objections if i can record this and i can get all the names and materials the things that you've done and then it's easier for me to get this dictated and i can build it into a brochure at a later date and they will i've never had anybody say no to I was me. to ask okay interesting not one single person um and again they you know i'll but conversely, I've seen people on an appraisal because I've been and watched them as an observer where they'll walk round and they won't even take a notepad and pen. So the vendor's talking about the house and all of the things that they've done. The person that's at the appraisal doing the valuation might not be the person that's doing the viewing appointment. How on earth is that person doing the appraisal going to effectively communicate to the person doing the viewing the features of that house so that the person doing the viewing can then convey that to a prospective purchaser? Everything is going to be lost in translation. Yeah. Whereas if I'm there at that point and I capture that from day dot, I'm able to name where the granite has come from and where it's been imported. Now I can highlight the waterfall uh, cut that's gone into the into the work surface in the island unit. Now, I can talk about the how many piles the foundations have been built on the thickness of the concrete floor. I can talk about the 215 mil glass profile on the windows that have gone in. I can talk about the fact that it's a square meter of light coming into the house. And again, when you're having that conversation, you relay that back to the seller. The seller is thinking, this is the person that I want that's going to be selling this property because they're going to do the best job of it. And the agent that turns up slightly late, they've not done the prep, they're not putting an effort to it. They're just, they're not going to win the instruction. So look, working in the upper quartile is not a thing where, you know, you can just dibble and dabble. It's a commitment to, to, to be better. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Music to my ears um, and you've very much uh, preached and converted. I think uh, from me, uh, visiting Park Lane recently um, and uh, I think a couple of times we've met before you know what uh, a geek I am when it comes to <laughs> uh, data and uh, and being very very prepared um, on things um, right coming towards the uh, end of the podcast now so we've got a um, couple uh, more things to uh, run through with you so um, I don't know if I can ask this or not but I'm going to seek forgiveness rather than ask permission so what is the the most valuable property you've ever sold Personally, yeah. uh, so we've personally about three million. Um, my team, we've I'm, I'm work, we're working on one at the minute at nine and a half million. Um, so this is my immediate team, the people that are close to me. But you've got to remember, I live in Leafy Leamington Spa in the Midlands, yeah. Um, which most people aren't even sure uh, where that exists. It's sort of in between the south and the It's not a particularly affluent area. It's not the the, the bonkers London prices. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when you drill down and you look at the residential records within our postcode districts, we've had we've had the record residential sale in all of them, and in some of them we've had ten out of the fifteen most expensive sales. Um, so yeah. that I think is the is the thing rather than what's the most expensive one that you've sold. What's the uh, what's your market share in that prime yeah. slice of the market? Yeah, I love the way you said that. Um, so my 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 reason for asking the question, the one that was, did you say nine and a half million that you're working on at the moment? Is it? Uh, yes. So where did that listing come from? Uh, so that one, uh, I think that one came as a direct result of a recommendation. Okay, and I imagine there's lots of recommendations and referrals because of the job you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, y- 
it's interesting in the last three or four years working as an agent myself i um if anybody rings the Leamington office for a market appraisal, they wouldn't have got me. The only time I'll have ever have gone out and done an appointment is if somebody's called me on my mobile phone because everything else, you just wouldn't get me. Because I just, I'm too too busy in order to be able to, to accommodate leads. And even now, I'll confess, I made the commercial decision in December that I've got to stop doing appraisals on the coalface because I just simply haven't got time. We've got new licenses I've got commitments with the board. I've got training, so I've had to step away from that. Can I um, can I interject there, John? So, because I think it's really interesting on what you said, and I really do apologise to cut across you, but I'm sure okay. again there's going to be people listening to this who, are perhaps in that, uh, I'm just thinking out loud now. They are a one branch independent, and the gentleman or lady who owns that business also does majority for listing. Um, yeah. yeah. So. And a lot of them, I have conversations with them. They're going, I need to be more on the business, not in the business. But I think they're they're scared to detach themselves from it. So, so from you going through a similar thing right now in the past few months, is there any advice you'd give on what you've learned in the past sort of three months of of it? Look, so. Um... <laughs> I mean, again, maybe to explain to any of the listeners that the, the, the setup we've got, um, we've got fine and country licenses in Leamington, Spa, Stratford upon Avon, Droitwich, Worcester, Hereford, Bromsgrove, Malvern. We now go down into the Cotswolds, Cheltenham, Gloucester, from Wimbledon, Battersea, Clapham. I also worked as an agent myself. I think in 2022, I did £330,000 worth of exchange fee value. Um, and they're dealing with listings and sales myself. And I'm talking cradle to grave stuff where I do the appraisal and I'm there on completion with the keys and handing the flowers over and taking the meter readings. And I literally do everything myself. I do a lot of training and also sit on the board. I sit as an NAC representative. And it was, I mean, a 60, 70 hour a week commitment to do all of those things. And my logic was, have you really got time to be doing listings and sales yourself? And, you know, I remember that old thing, oh, Richard Branson doesn't fly the planes. <laughs> yeah. And my, my logic used to be, ah, oh, yeah, but if Richard Branson in his spare times had like did a bit of flying because he really enjoyed it and it was a hobby, then it didn't <laughs> quite count. Um, but I, I actually got to the stage where it was becoming a bit overwhelming and I didn't want to be the agent that let people down by dropping the ball with stuff just because I was tied up in Park Lane for a couple of days or in yeah. two or three days of training. So I, I, I'd had this in the back of my mind for some time, but in December 2022, I said, no, that's it. I, I, I'm down in tools with listings and sales. And now it's more important to help other people and make sure that we're growing that business, we're recruiting and training the right people. So, you know, you, I'm, I'm fortunate in the sense that we've got an infrastructure in our business where we've got pre-sales, post-sales, admin, marketing support, we've got PR, we've got all of those resources if I wasn't part of the finding country network and I had to be doing all of those things as well, I'd have had to have made that decision to do it a long, long time ago because it just wouldn't have been sustainable. I was able to carry on doing listings and sales for as long as I did simply because we've got this perfect ecosystem, this infrastructure of all of these different specialist sectors, yeah. which helps us to do all of those different things. Uh, and at one point I was, I was MD for Sean's group, um, but there we didn't have 
the, the, the finding country resources, which meant in a lot of it you had to do yourself. I can remember doing a website from scratch with our IT manager. <laughs> and, you know, it's a massive commitment. Thankfully, we've got a massive team of people now that do all of those things on our behalf. So, you know, if you are if you're at that that tipping point where you're thinking I've got to start working on the business rather than in the business you probably should have already done it six 12 months ago and you're probably stifling the growth of your business by not making that step away yeah that's really powerful uh very very interesting um right last question before I will let you get on uh with your day I'm going to steal uh here from the World Class Agency podcast, because you did a fantastic episode with Mark and Sam um, a while back. And uh, I can't remember how many points it was, but when you would be listing or or deciding on whether to list a new property, there's certain points um, that that listing needs to have. And I, I've explained that terribly, but you know where I'm coming from because you're nodding your head. So for the listeners who haven't heard it before, can you just sort of explain what that is? Yeah, so uh, look, there used to be four. I'd say at the minute there there are five. There are five factors when making a decision as to whether you would take a listing or not. Um, Is it the right price? Is it the right fee? Is it a motivated vendor? Will they have a board? And is there a contribution to the marketing up front? And I think if you get a, a yes to four out of five of those, it's worth taking the listing. But there are so many people that I know that will take a listing with one out of five of those. And you, all that you're doing is inheriting a headache. And not all business is good business. Um, I genuinely think that a listing is a liability up until the point that it's sold. And there are so many instructions that I will walk away from. There was a really classic case of one that had been on the market for nearly five years with five different agents before Christmas, over 1,800 days. Um, and I walked away from the listing on several occasions, I said, no, because they come back, they tried hammering me down on feet. And I said, no, come back, tried hammering me down and sort of this, oh, get to this level. And I said, no. And then they come back and they said, okay, well, look, we'll do it, we'll pay the fee, but we don't want to do these things that you suggested because I wanted it staged, dressed, I wanted all these things. No, <laughs> I just kept pushing the listing back. And I think everyone before that, they followed the path of least resistance and they just go, oh, it's a listing, take it. Yeah. But it's not, it's a, it's a liability up until the point that it's sold and it's your reputation. Um, so I think it's got to be the right price. It's got to be the right fee. It's got to be motivated. It's got to have a board and it's got to have an upfront contribution. I think if you're four out of five, it's worth taking it. I love that. Um, that's absolute gold for, for anyone listening who's, who stayed to the end. So, uh, so I think that's a great point to end on because I, I I don't think we can top that, uh, John. So yeah, I just want to say um, on behalf of myself and all the listeners, thank you very much for coming on uh, and giving up a very valuable, uh, I don't know, it's probably been 40 minutes this morning of, of absolute gold. So yeah, thank you very much for, for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. That's quite all right. It was lovely talking to you. Good luck with everything. And, uh, and uh, yeah, maybe do another one again in the future. Definitely. Cheers, John.